Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. What we have just read is Paul's farewell sermon given to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Remember that Paul had preached and taught at Ephesus for three years, and there had been an amazing response, hadn't there? Many people had become followers of Jesus, so many that trade and idols fell away so much that the idol makers had revolted and caused a riot in the city centre. But Paul's been away from Ephesus for about a year now. And on his journey from Troas to Jerusalem, he's going to have to pass by Ephesus. He doesn't want to go into the city. You see, if he did, they would plead with him to stay and to preach to them. He wants to be in Jerusalem. But he's going to pass Ephesus by. That's going to give him an opportunity to have one final meeting with the elders of the church. He doesn't go into Ephesus for the meeting. He sailed past the city. The ship docked at Miletus, a small port, uh, 20 or 30 miles away, a day's walk. And there he met them. Verse 16 explains that Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia. For he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. So he calls the elders, and they come to him, and he gives his farewell speech. And we're looking at it in two parts this week, and God willing, next week. And this week, I want to look at Paul's integrity in ministry. And then next week, Paul's instructions to the church leaders. It's very interesting. Paul gives us here his self-assessment of his ministry at Ephesus. And he gives then this charge to the church leaders as to their responsibilities for the future of the church. It's an amazing speech. It's pastoral in content. It's the only speech of of Paul recorded in Acts that has the same tenor as his letters. In a passage like this, there's always difficulty for preachers um, dealing with Paul's ministerial standards. We would be inclined to want to point the finger at some of the low standards in ministry today. So the challenge is not to point the finger at others, but to look at Paul's standards and examine myself. And I let you examine yourself in the light of what he says. We see three just just three simple things. Paul's independent lifestyle, his intrepid ministry, and his immovable faith. And these three will form an opinion, an impression of Paul's pastoral integrity. Look at verse 18 then. 
And verse 18, it says that when they were come to him, this is the elders of the church have come out to Miletus. When they were come to him, he said unto them, Ye know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you in all seasons. He's speaking about his personal approach to his ministry in the town of Ephesus. Look at his humility. He says in verse 19, Serving the Lord with all humility of mind. Now, one of the things you see about Paul's writings is that he rarely ever mentions the word humility. After all, who's going to stand up at a pulpit and point to oneself and say, hey, look at how humble I am. That would kind of be the opposite, wouldn't it? That would kind of be pride rather than humility. And pride's a real temptation for preachers. Isn't there an illustration going around... um, James Montgomery Boyce reminds us of it in this passage of the preacher who was at the door of his church and somebody said to him, that was an amazing sermon, a wonderful sermon. And the preacher said, I know because the devil told me that when I was coming out of the pulpit. And that that saying has been attributed to so many different preachers that, well, they probably all said it. But I've heard people saying that Spurgeon said it, and I've heard people saying that Whitfield said it, and I've heard people saying that Martin Lloyd-Jones said it. I can assure you I've never said it. Never had the opportunity to. Come to think of it, there are some modern evangelical preachers in the visible church who do like to point to themselves as examples or illustrations of their own lifestyles and we don't have to look across the Atlantic either for that. Paul was humble in mind. He's saying to them, when I preached unto you what manner I was serving the Lord with humility of mind. I leave it to yourselves to figure out what that would have looked like in practice. How Paul in the lecture hall of Tyrannus would have portrayed that humility of mind. High preaching in the towns and the streets, high disputing in the synagogue, how would that humility of mind have come over? What would have looked like in the pulpit? Look at his humility. And look at his perseverance in this independent lifestyle. He says here, with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying and weight of the Jews. Look at the obstacles he encountered in his ministerial life. His tears and his temptations. Some modern translations put it as trials, but I think probably the AV and the New King James here are probably correct. These were trials in the sense of putting temptation before him. The temptation maybe just to give up and go home. That was a temptation I got very shortly after I entered full-time, as they call it, ministry. We'd only moved into my very first full-time church. And about three months afterwards, I found myself standing 
before the three elders being given an extremely harsh dressing down. It went on so long that one of the elders' wives came into the room and looked at me and said, I think I'd better get you a cup of tea before you drive home. Now that night I went home and I said to Jeanette, I'm packing this in. Never ever going to do this again. Didn't work of course, but I felt that temptation. The tears and temptations and the opposition of the Jews. I wonder if Paul was thinking of the opposition that had come from the Jews in Ephesus specifically or the Jews more widely. We know what happened when the riot happened in the huge theatre at Ephesus that the Jews had put forward a man called Alexander to try to deflect the blame away from them and to point the finger at Paul and Christians I wonder was that the very same Alexander that Paul talked about in his letter to Timothy when in 2 Timothy 4 and 14 he says that Alexander the coppersmith this mother man was also a smith Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil the Lord reward him according to his works and yet through all of that temptation and tears and opposition, Paul pressed on regardless. And then he talks about his example. In verse 33, he says, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. No jealousy there. Paul was an itinerant evangelist, going about from place to place with no fixed abode, in none of the comforts of the world, and yet he was ministering to Gentiles in Asia Minor, and some of them were very, very wealthy people indeed, Priscilla and Aquila, here in Ephesus, at least for part of the time here, were international business people. Look at their wealth. It would be easy for Paul to go to them and say, you know, you need to contribute something to the ministry of the church. But he didn't do that. Just sort of to continue that earlier illustration, in that same church, one of the reasons that I thought it would be easy to give up and go home was because we had a house in Bangor where we previously lived and which was still on the market and hadn't sold. We were living in council accommodation at the time. And it would have been easy to go back to it, take the sales sign off the door. And a few months after that incident, the house sold. And we decided, well, with the money that we've got from the house that we've sold, we're going to buy another house, a house for ourselves so that I don't squander the money. So I'd have spent all that money in books or something foolish. And we thought best to put the, the residue of the money into a new house. 
we did that. We bought a house with it. And when we bought a house, a church called a church meeting to discuss the fact that I had bought a house. And they called everyone in and they had a full building of angry people who had discovered that the pastor had bought himself a worldly possession. And there was a young lady who stood up in the in the meeting, it was a church meeting, and she was very cross. And she said, How dare the pastor buy a house? Why did the pastor not put that money into the Lord's work? Now this same woman had a big bungalow and drove an Audi. And they had two very fancy cars. Nothing wrong with Audis, isn't that? It's just what she drove. She was keeping all her money. But because I was the pastor, I wasn't to have any money at all or any property. So you see, the easiest thing for me to stand up in that meeting and say, why can't you share some of your money? Actually, I kept quiet and just sat and let the storm rage around me until it was all over. Paul didn't plead for money. He says, in fact, in verse 34, Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. You know, one of the things I get really cross about is Christians who come to a church to represent a missionary cause or a ministry of some kind, and then they spend the time that's allotted to them in the service pleading for money. Paul needed money to live. So do you. So do we all. So do I. So he got a job. And he went out and he was a stitcher. Stitching tents together. Working with canvas. Working to support himself. And not only himself, but his fellow co-workers as well. Sharing out their resources. He says in verse 34, Ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them who were with me. There's no jealousy in Paul. He's not jealous of Aquila and Priscilla's big house. He's not jealous of someone else's prosperity. He's not jealous of someone else's fine clothing or their money or their silver or their gold. And he's not going around pleading for money. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Because sometimes today, pastors and missionaries and evangelists and Christian workers seem to think that they're entitled to get money off people. Now, a man rang me one day. He was, he was a, a pastor of some hall about Balamina. And he actually asked me on the phone how he would go about getting money to live from his ministry. And my reply was, go and get yourself a job. Do some honest work. 
The Lord will bless your ministry. No jealousy. No pleading for money. No selfishness. I have showed you, verse 35, I have showed you all things, how that so laboring ye ought to support the weak. You see, in his ministerial integrity, Paul was an example to the ordinary people. In fact, he says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's an interesting verse. It's not in the list of blessings in the Beatitudes. Sure, it's not on the Sermon on the Mount. One commentator seems to think that it may have been something that Jesus just frequently said to his disciples. Listen, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And Paul is saying to the elders here at Miletus, these elders of the Ephesian church, you've seen how I've lived my life. I haven't gone around your church being jealous of what you have. I've not been pleading for money from you. I've been self-supporting, looking after others with the work of my own hands. Now go you and do that too. Paul reminds them of his own lifestyle not to commend himself but to point to Christ who gave everything for us and to exemplify for them a godly lifestyle so that he could actually say in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1 be ye followers of me even as I also am of Christ our prayer should be that our lives are more Christ-like in that fashion so that we are an example to others. Let's see quickly Paul's intrepid ministry in verse 20. He says, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. Now that's a fantastic verse and you should underline that in your Bible. Throughout his time in Ephesus, Paul's ministry had included both public preaching and private catechesis. From house to house, it was based on the teaching methods that he had learned as a Jewish rabbi. It was the basis of the later work of Richard Baxter in Kidderminster. We haven't time to go into the story of that, but I wrote a dissertation on Baxter of Kidderminster for my master's degree uh, at the Baptist College and um, I'd love to let you see it but I think I threw it out <laughs> I was so displeased with it, it did pass but many many souls in Kidderminster were converted to Christ Many souls were discipled despite the fact that the vicar of Kidderminster was a godless waster of a man who was only interested in getting his day and, and didn't want to preach and Baxter came in as the teaching pastor as it was of the church and he began not just to preach a sermon in the afternoon to the people but he actually went from home to home 
teaching and catechizing. Now compare Paul's ministry methods here with the commands of the Lord Jesus in the Great Commission. Paul says here that he taught them from home to home. Now that's very important because evangelistic preaching The preaching that brings people to Christ is didactic preaching. It's instructive preaching. It's doctrinal preaching. Paul never organized a revival crusade. Paul never went around with a praise band or a choir. Paul never made an emotional appeal appeal for people to accept Christ into their hearts. Paul taught in the church and from house to house. If you look closely at the command of Christ in Matthew chapter 28 to 19, it tells us that we are to go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And the Greek word teach there is based on the word mathetes, matateu, make disciples. The word mathetes is the word disciple. When we teach people, it's synonymous with making them disciples. And that ministry strategy is a lot different from modern ministry strategies, isn't it? It is. Our job is to be teachers of the gospel. What was Paul's teaching ministry like? Let's look at it. Verse 20. He was a very plain preacher. I have showed you and have taught you. What does Paul mean when he says he's shown us? He didn't draw a picture or erect a statue or use a flannel graph. He demonstrated his teaching by pointing to the cross. And he did it in such a manner that everyone could understand it. He was a plain teacher. He demonstrated doctrine. He illustrated doctrine. He taught them. He was a plain preacher and he was a pointed preacher. He, his words were right to the point. Verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's the point of preaching. That we should preach repentance coming to faith in Christ. That we should tell people that they were sinners. Paul didn't hold back when he was preaching. I don't know what it would be like to listen to Paul, but I don't think it would have been comfortable. I don't think it would have been amusing. I don't think it would have been entertaining. Paul preached the same message no matter where he went. He said that he would know nothing among the people of Corinth but Christ and him crucified. It was direct and it was pointed and it led to conviction of sins and it led to repentance and turning away from sins, turning to God through faith in Christ. And you can't repent if you're not made aware that you're a sinner bound for a lost eternity. 
Paul's message wasn't seeker-sensitive at all. It wasn't purpose-driven at all. It wasn't meeting our felt needs. It, he was a pointed preacher. It was a hard-hitting, pointed call to repent and trust Christ. He was a plain preacher. He was a pointed preacher. He was a painstaking preacher. Paul's teaching was comprehensive. Now, I know many one-subject preachers. Used to be, when I was a child, a teenager, we would go to hear people who preached all the time on the second coming. You could go anywhere and you would have these preachers who would have a series of meetings on the end times. And they would have the same subjects, time after time, crusade after crusade. And they would be, you know, the, the, the rapture would be one night, and the Antichrist would be one night, and the tribulation would be one night, and the millennium would be one night, and you could near write the sermons for them. There was a man who did great gospel crusades here in Northern Ireland. He only had about 14 sermons to his repertoire. And everywhere you went, this man drew amazing crowds and he preached the same 14 sermons everywhere he went. Of course you could get that. But Paul, in verse 27, look at it, says, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God wasn't just one subject all the time but everything that he preached pointed to Christ and him crucified but when he did it he did it through a wide variety of biblical topics he taught the scriptures one commentator calls this an, an example of evangelism in depth sharing all possible truth to all possible men in all possible ways. He was a plain preacher, a pointed preacher, a painstaking preacher, and a preacher who had great pity for those who were lost. We've already noticed that Paul shed tears over the trials and temptations he'd endured. Look at verse 31, though. When he speaks again of, te of tears, pleading with sinners to repent. Therefore, watch and remember. It's a lovely verse. Watch and remember that by the space of three years, I ceased not to warn everyone, nay and day and night, with tears. I'm always very skeptical of weepy preachers. I remember a preacher of days gone by who was always put on a powerful display and act in the pulpit. I'm reluctant to call it act. I don't suppose that's what it was. But one minute he'd be up on his tiptoes shouting out the good news and praising God. And the next minute he'd be down on his knees, maybe out in front of the pulpit, and he'd be down on his knees, and he'd be slapping the floor and the tears running down his cheeks while he called on sinners to repent. Now, I can't judge his sincerity, of course. I just always wondered how he could turn it on and off in every sermon. Paul's tears weren't for effect. 
Paul's tears weren't a substitute for solid doctrinal preaching. When Paul cried and wept over the souls of men, they were tears of pity. Paul was empathetic with those he served. He felt their pain. He wept with them. He pastored them with a shepherd's heart. And later he would instruct the Romans to rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Is it any wonder that Paul's ministry becomes an example to others and to us? Lastly, for time is gone. Paul's immovable faith. Paul's immovable faith. Let's see Paul's steadfast faith in God, whatever the future may bring, whatever his own future may be. And I wonder just how many of us worry sincerely about the future. What do you depend upon? face an uncertain future. Look at Paul's faith and trust in God. Look at verse 22. He says in verse 22, Now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. He's taking the money that he collected from the Gentile churches to Jerusalem to distribute it to the needy saints. Nothing's going to hold him back. And yet, as we'll see in the coming weeks, there's great danger there. And Paul has already received the witness of God to that effect. Verse 23, save that the Holy Spirit witnesseth that in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. Was he saying that the Lord had spoken this to him? In direct revelation. After all, this is before the completion of the canon of Scripture. Or is he just stating the obvious? And yet he's unconcerned. Verse 24 says, None of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself. Actually, when he says, None of these things move me, in a few weeks' time, we'll be seeing how Paul's stubbornness possibly leads him into trouble. But what's important is the eternal souls of those who will be lost without Christ. His uncertainties of life, his unconcern about his own suffering, his ultimate ambition is found in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8 where he says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of of the knowledge of Christ. He wants to finish his course with joy and the ministry that he has received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. So we have an example of Paul's ministry, his pastoral integrity, his independent lifestyle, not living off the backs of other people. And believe me, I do believe, as Paul argued elsewhere, that the laborer is worthy of his hire. But at the same time, not deliberately going out to enrich himself 
at the expense of others, his independent lifestyle, his intrepid ministry, plainly preaching the gospel, pointedly warning people of the danger of rejecting Christ, painstakingly rehearsing the doctrines of grace over and over again, and yet with great compassion and pity for those who are perishing. And as far as he was concerned, he had an immovable faith that no matter what happens to him, the gospel must be preached. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.